Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastoral interns here. Uh, and if you have your Bibles uh, or your devices, or you would just like to read along on the screen, we're going to be continuing in our sermon series in Mark uh, and looking at Mark chapter 12 and verses 1 to 12 this morning. So, as we come to God's word, let us stand uh, as we hear from it. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 to 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He still had one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you are a God who speaks. You are a God who reveals to us. Please give us uh, soft hearts, humble hearts, listening ears as we come before your word now. Help us to diminish, help us to lay aside distractions, and help us to fix our eyes on the beauty of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Do take your seats. Sometimes we human beings... We make really rubbish decisions, don't we? Whether it be inexplicably deciding to wear one of your best shirts while cooking. Yep, that happened. Or or something maybe a little bit more important, like deciding that taking the whole family to the park in the pouring rain might be a fun bonding time. We're all capable of making poor decisions, of not choosing what's best for us, often making the same, dis- same bad decision over and over again, thinking that it's a good decision when reality clearly speaks otherwise. In today's passage that we've just read, Jesus exposes a really bad decision. 
Far worse than deciding what you might wear or where you might live. With this pointed parable, this kind of story with sharp edges, if you will, Jesus brilliantly turns the tables on the Pharisees and the religious leaders in his day who have just been accusing him and questioning his authority and he exposes just how bad a decision it is to reject him. All of us make decisions each and every day, whether we know it or not, about Jesus. Whether you would not call yourself a Christian a Christ follower. Maybe you think that Jesus is just a good man or or, or a religious martyr. Or, Or you would say that you follow Christ, but you recognize that saying such a thing involves daily choices to trust his authority and rule and lay aside your own. We all make decisions about Jesus. And so today, that's our controlling theme, what it looks like to say no to Jesus. And we're going to see four things as we tell this story. Firstly, the stupidity of that decision. And then secondly, the motive, why we might choose to reject this man. And in those first two points, we'll just walk through this parable just as Jesus tells it. And then, thirdly, we will see the end game of rejecting Jesus, where that kind of decision is ultimately heading. And then finally, we'll see Jesus' breathtaking and earth-shattering twist in verses 10 and 11. So the stupidity, the motive, the end game, and then the twist of of rejecting Jesus. But let's start by simply exploring this story Jesus, first of all, describes a man who plants a vineyard. Verse 1, building a little fence and a wine press and a tower, ready to produce grapes and wine. And he goes off into another country and leases his land and small business to some tenants who can look after it for him. Now, now sometimes Jesus' parables are quite confusing. They sort of veil more than they reveal. But the analogy in this one is pretty clear, and there would be no doubt in the minds of the Pharisees listening what Jesus was talking about. It is Israel being spoken of here. Repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described as a vine or a vineyard, and the vine was a symbol of the Israelite nation, much like an eagle might make one think of the states. And so if the vineyard is Israel... The man who plants is God. He is the one who takes these people and plants them in a certain land, giving them instruction and guidance and calling them to bear fruit and be a blessing to those around them. And as the story continues, what we discover next is that when the vineyard had grown, maybe after a few years, and the time had come to gather the fruit the owner sends one of his servants to collect it. But, verse 3, these tenants are revealed to be wicked people, almost irrational and incomprehensible in their actions. They took this servant and beat him and sent him away with nothing. Maybe at this point in the minds of the Pharisees listening, 
a rather unpleasant light bulb starts to flicker on. If God is the owner and the vineyard is Israel, the tenants are those whom God has entrusted with leadership, right? The ones responsible for the care and protection of Israel, humanly speaking. They are, in other words, the religious leaders, the very men whom Jesus is speaking directly to. And so as Jesus continues, maybe their eyes drop to the floor. Maybe they start shifting uncomfortably in their seats. Because just look at the escalating violence of the tenants in verse 4 onwards. The owner sends another servant, and they strike him on the head and treat him shamefully. He sends another servant, this time whom they didn't just beat up and leave penniless, they actually killed. And so, verse 5, with many others. There's almost something farcical about this, something grotesque and so blatantly implausible. The owner keeps sending servants and the tenants every single time. Some they killed and some they beat. But while the story might seem faintly ridiculous, the punch is very, very real. Because Jesus here is describing the history of Old Testament Israel and, in particular, the reception that God's servants, the biblical prophets, received at the hands of Israel, repeatedly rejected, mocked, and scorned. Some they beat, and some they killed. Now, you might be thinking at this point that this owner is an extreme example of a total idiot. Sure, send a couple of servants, but once the tenants start killing, you're probably past the point of talking it through. This is either sheer idiocy or unbelievable naivety. But in the context of this wider allegory, this is not speaking of the owner's lack of business savvy, but of his patience and forbearance. Friends, God is a God who, despite the repeated rejection of human beings, gives chance after chance after chance. Instead of turning his back on his people, God continued to send messengers, warning and prophesying, urging the people to return to him. This is God's covenantal kindness. His commitment to faithfulness where there is profound and abundant unfaithfulness. Like a spouse who receives their partner in forgiveness where there has been flagrant betrayal, God's patient love is seen in how he allows himself to be treated by these tenants. Not crushing them, but calling them to repentance and relationship. And so I want you to catch, therefore, the sheer stupidity of these men. What exactly can they possibly think to gain by taking the servants of this kind master and killing them? And the farcical over-the-topness of this story is kind of exactly the point. Jesus is, without directly accusing, twisting the screw and saying, you fools, you idiots, look at your history. You are these wicked tenants, foolishly spurning the master who is repeatedly giving you chance 
after chance. What are you doing? Well, our question at this point might be the same. What are these tenants doing? (laughs) What's their game? What's their motive for this seemingly foolish decision? What are they hoping to get? Well, as the narrative begins to reach its dark and bloody climax in verse 6, we begin to see something of what the tenants think is in it for them. We're told that the owner still had one other. The servants are all either beaten senseless or dead, but there is another, the master's own beloved son. Finally, the owner thinks, finally these tenants will listen Surely they will listen and respect my son. Our response, maybe, as we're listening to this story, is no. (laughs) What are you doing? Why would you send your son when you know what these tenants are capable of? But everyone listening would get the point. As Jesus starts talking about a beloved son, with the echoes of his baptism and those words from heaven, you are my beloved son, With you, I am well pleased. No one would miss what's being said. If God is the owner, the prophets are the servants, the Pharisees are the tenants, who is the son? Well, it is the divine son, the second member of the Trinity, Jesus Christ himself. After the shameful and hideous treatment of his servants, God, in his love and his kindness and his grace, sends his own beloved son. And what do the tenants do? Well, verse 8 now reads with a pin drop, doesn't it? They took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. I wonder whether you've ever had one of those conversations, maybe when you were a child being told off, where you want to look anywhere else except at the person speaking. Is there a greater example of this than here? Jesus has just exposed their stupidity, slammed their leadership, popped their self-righteousness, and to top it all off, predicted his own death at their hands. And he also brilliantly exposes their motives here in verse 7. As the sun arrives, the tenants think, hey, here's the heir. Maybe his arrival means that the owner's also dead, and if we kill this guy, well, we get the vineyard. We become the boss, and we can take all the profits for ourselves. Friends, it is always the case that rejecting Jesus is ultimately because we want to be Jesus. We do not want him to be the authority in our lives, and we do not want him, we do not want to acknowledge that what we have is ultimately from him and for him. Now, this story reserves its sharpest edges, particularly for leaders, right? And there's important application here for those in Christian leadership today. You are not ultimately in charge, and what you have is not ultimately yours. But this heart tendency to subtly push Jesus out of the picture, 
to seek the establishment of our own little thrones as we become the mini-gods of our own lives, well, that's effectively the heart of every single person who has ever lived. To you who think, Christian or not, that your happiness is rooted in the pursuit of money, the accumulation of stuff, the safety and security of material possessions, you are crowding Jesus out. To you who think that your satisfaction is found in relationships, in your family or your people or that one special someone, you are crowding Jesus out. Or or to you who think that your peace and well-being in life starts with knowing things, having a grasp of what's around you and making sense, you are crowding Jesus out. You are, in effect, taking the son, killing him, and throwing him out of the vineyard. And I'm not just speaking to a really bad, small section of really bad people, or to those who very obviously and flagrantly reject Jesus, although I am speaking to you. I am speaking to all of us, myself included, because this is essentially what the Bible will call sin. Choosing to find our satisfaction and fulfillment, however subtle we might do it, in anything and anyone other than God. But does it work? That's the question whenever we're making decisions, isn't it? Where's it going? What's the outcome? Is it going to be a good decision or a bad decision? What is the end result of making the decision to reject Jesus in your heart? That's kind of the question that Jesus asks in verse 9. A question that's almost laughably rhetorical. The drama of it hanging in the air for a moment. What will the owner of the vineyard do? Shrug his shoulders? cut his losses, simply accept the death of his beloved son and many of his servants and just crack on with his life? Of course not. The owner will finally come himself and will bring the full force of the law, right? He will come and will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Brothers and sisters, this is ultimately a parable of judgment. It is a parable that states in no uncertain terms that whatever it looks like, repeated rejection of God and his servants ultimately leads to death. God is a God of deep, deep patience. But he is also a holy and righteous God who will not and cannot let the injustice of wicked tenants last forever. I think sometimes in our world, for many people in today's world, God, if he even exists, feels like an absentee landlord. Maybe he once was important, but he's so far and distant from us now Is he even really that involved in our lives? I do not know where each of you sit with Jesus today. I don't know what you think of him. 
Maybe you've heard of him. You're aware of who he is. But he doesn't make much of a tangible impact on your day-to-day life. Jesus is telling you here that your decision-making regarding this man is essentially the most important decision that you will make in your entire life, bar none. It really is a matter of life and death. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Many people in this world have chosen to reject Jesus, the Son, setting themselves up as lords of their little worlds, rejecting the reality of being creatures of God. Do not make this mistake. And do not be like the Pharisees who hear this parable, perceive that it's about them, verse 12, but left him and went away. What a desperately sad conclusion. Friends, judgment is a real thing, and rejecting Jesus leads to death. But maybe you do have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe you can point to moments in your life where Jesus felt close, where you would call him Savior and Lord, and there would be a tangible sense that those things meant something. But now there feels distance. You feel like you live in a world where wicked tenants are winning the day. Maybe it's because you look at the church and all you see in the global church is sexual scandal and abuses of power. Maybe it's because you look at our leaders and all you see is a people in it for themselves. Politics as profit and a government of greed. Maybe it's because you look at your own relationships in your life and feel lonely, feeling the weight of disappointments in a world where people hurt each other. Maybe you simply feel that God is an absentee landlord and you are tempted to place your trust elsewhere. Brothers and sisters, do not give up your hope and trust in Jesus Christ. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Yes, our world is a world of injustice. Yes, our world is a world of abuse. But God is not dead. He is not asleep and he has not forgotten. For those who love him and trust him, He is faithful to the end and will one day make all of this world new. Justice is coming. And that's a good thing for those who trust in him. But how can we know? To you who are maybe unsure as to whether Jesus is really worth your total allegiance, Or to you who are unsure whether justice will reign in the end, how can we know? Well, at this point, in verse 10 of our narrative, Jesus then steps out of this parable in order to interpret it himself, drawing the religious leaders to their Old Testaments, to their own text that they know so well and are deeply familiar with. And he says, have you not read the implication being that they have read 
but have maybe not understood. But here we get a fabulous twist. A twist surpassing any crime thriller or Netflix drama. A paradigm-shifting, upside-down, topsy-turvy twist of all twists. Because we would think, at this point, that Jesus would maybe cite a portion of the Old Testament that talks about God's justice or his coming judgment, right? There'd be loads of those. Or maybe he would choose a particular part of Scripture which speaks of Israel's specific rejection of a certain prophet. That would fit with the context. But instead, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, a psalm of thanksgiving and praise, and he starts talking about stones and builders and cornerstones. What on earth is he talking about? Well, the link, of course, is rejection. This is a psalm that speaks of the rejection of a certain someone. And in the context of the psalm, it is the Davidic king. He is the one who has enemies who are trying and have tried to bring him low. And so here, Jesus is the stone that the builders the enemies of God have rejected and are bringing low. But there's nothing in our parable itself that points to any special significance for the son. Did you notice that? In the parable itself, the son is loved, the son is sent, and the son is killed. There's no dramatic restoration for the son. No poignant reversal of fortunes, just a body thrown out of the vineyard and left to rot. And then the righteous justice and vengeance of the owner. The point of the parable is that justice will be done. But not that the son has any special role in that. He just dies. But then Jesus explodes and expands our expectations confirming to us that justice will be done and that we should choose Jesus over everything else every single day because it's all about him. Because the stone, he says, that the builders rejected, the son that was killed, has become the cornerstone, the centerpiece of the whole thing without which the whole building would collapse. What a twist. The off-cut is actually the main event. The cutting room floor footage is the climactic scene in the film. Through the death of the Son, everything that God intended for humanity was achieved. And I want us to see two dimensions to this as we draw to a close. Firstly, Jesus being rejected leads to our salvation. Now, do not misunderstand me. I do not mean that your rejection of Jesus leads to your salvation. Judgment is a real part of this parable. You must not reject Jesus, and if you do, that leads to death, your death. But that's not quite where Jesus wants his story to land. In this parable, we are not simply looking at a naive master who rather foolishly loses his son and then executes justice. 
No, we are looking at God, our heavenly Father, who in his steadfast love, care, and compassion sends his Son, who chooses to come willingly to earth and lay down his life, nailed to a Roman cross at the hands of wicked and unjust people and sealed up in a stone tomb. Just as he predicted, they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Why did Jesus do this? Well, the drama of this story is the drama of both justice and love, right? Is the owner patient and forbearing or just and righteous? Friends, in the death of Jesus, justice and love meet. The truth is, we are all in some ways like these tenants, choosing something other than God because we really want to be God. And the end game of that choice, according to the Bible, is death. But... For those who trust in Jesus, it is his death, not ours. He came to this earth, entering into the most hideous injustice and wickedness, flagrant betrayal and rejection, and died, taking upon himself the brokenness and wickedness of human beings so that we can live. Why is choosing Jesus worth it? Because he is the king who laid aside his crown so that you and I, who have rejected him, can return to enjoy a relationship with him if we place our trust in him. But then, secondly, just as Jesus being rejected, God uses and that leads to our salvation, Jesus being rejected leads to his vindication. This is because though the son may have been taken, killed, and thrown out of the vineyard, he doesn't stay out of the vineyard. He doesn't stay dead, rising from the dead three days later. In the resurrection, the rejected becomes the ruler. The killed becomes the king, moving from rejection to high exaltation defeating death itself, the great enemy of life, and the enemy that thought it had won while Jesus' body lay in a tomb. But nothing can thwart God's purposes. And in raising Jesus to life, he rises in triumphant victory over all of the forces of evil and invites those to join him in this resurrected life. Life and life to the full. Friends, we all make decisions every single day. Big decisions and small decisions. But the biggest decision you will ever make is what to do with this man, Jesus. He is the one that, though despised and rejected by men, used that rejection and death to save all who would trust in him. To defeat death itself and to ultimately restore justice to a world of deep and profound injustice. Is this not marvelous in your eyes? Choose, if you have not already, to give all of your life to him 
And if you have made that choice already, continue to choose every single moment to follow his authority in all that you do, for he is worth it on every level. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. And as we come to this text, we find that our eyes gradually peel away off ourselves and are fixed on the beauty and the wonder of your Son, who came to this earth, who suffered the most hideous rejection, far worse than a rejection we ever suffer. But he did so because he loves us and wants to restore us to a relationship with you, our Heavenly Father. Thank you that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, but becomes the cornerstone. And as we sing now, as we sing our praises to you for what you have done for us in our lives, fill our hearts by your Spirit with this sense of beauty and wonder and awe as we praise you for who you are, and what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.